Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled COVID-19 Vaccination, Third Doses and Boosters. During this podcast, Dr. Rinslow Shearer, Director, International HIV Training Center, and Professor of Medicine in the Section of Infectious Diseases and Global Health in the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, discusses COVID-19 vaccine efficacy, third doses, booster doses, and the ability to mix and match booster doses. For more information about Dr. Shearer and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Shearer has to say about COVID-19 third doses and booster doses. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Um, we've been talking about what a daunting challenge this is to try to organize a coherent talk on the question of boosters and third doses um, and mixing and matching, which I'll address in the end, while we're literally looking at data in real time and things are changing fast. So I hope I can help to clarify uh, your understanding of the need for third doses and those who are immunocompromised and the current state of the art in terms of boosters for subsets or for uh, all adults. So um, one of the things that's been hard to find is good comparative information on the different vaccines that are in use in the United States. So this seemed like a good place to start. This is the CDC's presentation of data from March and August, so well within the Delta era of a comparative analysis of the three different vaccines in use in the United States, Moderna, Pfizer-BNT, and J&J. And they divided this, the top line in each category is the overall surveillance period result. And then they broke it down by results within the first four months and then following four months. And so you can see in the first panels, the Moderna vaccine seemed to hold its own pretty well at 93% overall and only a diminution to 92%. So really not a meaningful reduction in overall efficacy during that time. In comparison, Pfizer-BNT overall was 88%, and many other studies have reassured us that each of our vaccines that are available in the United States are highly effective against overall uh, infection, against severe illness, and against death. But you can see that over time, the Pfizer-BNT went from 91% down to 77% after that four-month period. The Janssen vaccine or the J&J vaccine was initially at 71% efficacy, a little lower than with the mRNA vaccines, which numerous studies have shown. And after uh, 28 days following full vaccination, that fell to, to 68%. So a suggestion of uh, overall somewhat reduced efficacy over time with Pfizer-BNT and lesser overall with the Janssen vaccine. Um, there are correlations between neutralizing an RBD antibody levels and overall vaccine efficacy. And that's again demonstrated, I think, here in this um, study also from CDC in three different hospitals in the United States, looking just at the antibody responses and concentration with the three different major vaccines, looking on the left at the anti RBD uh, immunoglobulin and on the right, anti spike. And you can see in general that the mRNA vaccines generate a substantially larger response in antibodies than does the uh, 
adenovirus vac vaccine, in this case, Janssen. And that's also been seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine in the United Kingdom. So I, I sort of wanna go back to this overall approach for what we know about overall efficacy with vaccines. Compared to people who have not been vaccinated, there's a dramatic reduction in the risk of any infection. In this study from CDC, it was a five-fold difference. Other studies have shown that to be as high as eight-fold. And a reduction in the risk of hospitalization or death of greater than tenfold. And this is in the Delta era. So again, just a extraordinary efficacy. Another study showed those numbers for preventing hospitalization and death to be 25-fold greater in those who are vaccinated compared to those who are unvaccinated. I'm sure that all of you are aware that by far and away the most uh, prominent incidence of infection still in the United States is among the unvaccinated. And that is our greatest challenge to um, bring those who are still vaccine hesitant into the fold and to achieve full vaccination to the extent uh, that's possible. There was a study recently in published from the Yale School of Public Health that suggested that the overall impact of the COVID-19 vaccinations overall in the United States was uh, savings of 279,000 lives. So as you all know, there's been more than three quarters of a million people who have died in the United States from COVID-19 to date. With that additional burden, that would have put us over a million deaths. There's also been additional studies suggesting that among the vaccine hesitant, had they gotten vaccinations at the first time that they were available, we might have saved an additional 150,000 lives if they had chosen to, to undergo vaccination. So I, I think this is an urgent matter. So I wanna break down the question of extra doses and boosters first by looking at those who are immune compromised. And I thought this was an interesting study from Israel that would actually help us to understand a little bit. This was using a single methodology single laboratory at the national level. So it allows us to compare quite a broad range of different immune compromised individuals. And what I think you can see on the left panel in the RBD binding immunoglobulin, substantially lower levels compared to the control on the far right, much lower levels among those with a recent kidney transplant, harder liver transplant, those with hematologic malignancies, those with solid tumors. And I thought it was of interest in this study where they primarily had enrolled people with HIV who had, were on antiretroviral therapy and well-controlled, that the levels of antibodies in those patients with HIV were actually lower, but still a little more comparable to the uh, normal host. So here you get the sense of an incomplete response um, to vaccination among those who are immune compromised with a variety of different conditions. And it's equally important to know that many small scale studies, this is just one from Kemmer in the New England Journal, looking at what's the impact of an additional dose past the standard two doses for an mRNA in stimulating additional antibody formation. And I think you can see easily that in this analysis before the third dose was administered, only about 40% of patients who had received a solid organ transplant, this was a study in France, had had an effective antibody response. And one month following that third dose, that number increased uh, up to 65%, um, sorry, 68%. Now understand that that still represents a problem for solid organ transplant recipients. That means 32% of people still, even after a third dose, 
have yet to have an effective antibody response, an adequate antibody response. So, but it gives us an understanding of the rationale for uh, uh, giving a third dose of an mRNA vaccine, or as I'll point out in, in, in a moment, a second dose following J&J &J within a month of their last dose. This is to try to achieve an adequate initial response to vaccination. And that's the reason for the timing of that recommendation from CDC. So you'll remember in August 12th, um, the uh, FDA granted an emergency use authorization for an additional third vaccine dose, four weeks following the second dose for the mRNA vaccines for a, a group of individuals who are immune compromised, much as the list that I just described, and included those people with HIV infection, but actually not all of them, those who had either advanced or untreated HIV. Um, and that list is quite a long list. It includes, for those who are immune compromised, transplant recipients, as I mentioned, uh, hematologic malignancies, sour, uh, solid tumors, and particularly among those, those who are on cancer chemotherapy or immunotherapy with recent diagnoses. And then a variety of people on immunosuppressive therapies like rituximab, like long-term steroids um, that are associated with known uh, chronic immune suppression. So, and I wanna just then fast forward from that recommendation. So again, that's to achieve an initial effective response. And I think uh, allows broad discretion for clinicians who are managing patients with who are immune compromised to administer third doses in that setting. So um, for normal hosts um, in August 21st, uh, the CDC recommended following authorization from the FDA that um, a certain group of population of individuals in the United States receive booster doses. And this is separate, this is six months following their second, in this case, their mRNA dose. Uh, and the individuals they identified were people over age 65, those adults who lived in high-risk settings like long-term care settings, nursing homes, uh, those who are adults who work um, or live in high-risk settings, so healthcare workers or other essential workers. And then importantly, those people uh, over age 18 with underlying medical conditions, comorbidities like diabetes and chronic heart disease that we've associated with um, a higher risk of severe HIV, uh, severe COVID-19. And um, importantly, at the same time, the CDC also recommended a vaccine booster dose for anybody um, who had been vaccinated two or more months ago with the Janssen COVID-19 vaccine. And that's in recognition of a lower initial response and then also some evidence of waning efficacy of the J&J &J vaccine over time. So then let's move ahead and I'll show you some of the data that led um, to the authorization for booster doses um, from FDA and the recommendation from CDC. <clears throat> so you're looking here at data from um, a, a large study in Israel looking at the uh, effectiveness of mRNA vaccines in people over age 60 based on the timing of their second dose. And what you can see is as these colors get lighter, you're looking at a further and further distance um, from the time of their initial vaccination. So those who are vaccinated in January are very light. It gets darker February, March. And then the solid blue color is for overall for everybody. And you can see the overall results are spectacular protection against severe COVID-19 of 
against hospitalization of 88%, but then it falls substantially for symptom, any symptomatic HIV to 41% and any infection at all. But within that last, those last two categories, it actually, there's enormous variations depending on the timing of the infection. So the chance of any symptomatic HIV, as uh, any symptomatic COVID-19 is quite small um, in the group that's recently been vaccinated, but it's gradually falling off over time with each passing month following infection. So you can get the sense then that there's overall waning in efficacy and several studies have actually pointed in this direction. And maybe more importantly, then the question becomes, if there's waning in, on older folks, then what is the impact of a booster in restoring um, an effective response and effective immune response? And so I think the numbers here matter and they're helpful. So I'm gonna look at the lower column here in the same paper, looking at the incidence of severe disease, since we care first most about illness, death and severe illness. And you can see in the group that has not received a booster of 4.5 million person days at risk, there were 294 cases of severe illness. So still a very low incidence, but nonetheless, um, a substantial number of people who go on to develop severe illness and there will be deaths among that group. And compare that then to what happens to age-matched individuals in the booster group, where out of 6.2 million person days of risk, the number of cases has fallen to 29. And you can see that adjusted rate ratio is 19.5. So a dramatic reduction in severe illness. If you look at the column and the row above, you can see also this is true for any confirmed infection that out of 5.1, Million, uh, per million person days at risk. There were 4,400 cases in the group that had not received a booster, <clears throat> and that fell to 934 in the group that had received the booster. So a substantial impact in reducing all infection, as well as dramatically reducing the likelihood of severe illness. So in the um, presentation to the CDC, there was an estimation of <clears throat> excuse me, the number of people needed to vaccinate with a booster dose to prevent one hospitalization over six months. And you see that it's by far and away that has the greatest impact in the group that's over age 65. So you're talking about somewhere between 300 doses of uh, the Janssen uh, booster up to 859 for a Moderna booster with each, which you, each of those you prevent one hospitalization. And that number rises substantially into the several thousands for the younger age groups. So there are a couple questions that are commonly asked around um, this information. So why, why not um, just do boosters for all? And up until this most recent two month period, we really haven't seen evidence of a severe decline in overall efficacy in this younger age population um, as a matter of degrees. Um, particularly in those people who don't have comorbidities and that's the reason for the recommendation that it be in those who are most seriously affected initially. And also of course we put a higher priority in our country and globally on getting vaccinations to all those who are vaccine hesitant. I don't wanna set that up as an either and, either or, I think we should be approaching that as um, both our priorities. <clears throat> and, and I think both CDC and FDA have said to await further data on the expansion of these recommendations. 
And of course, there's uh, new information, I think, still uh, in front of the FDA this week that may change that further. Um, Pfizer has applied for um, the application of the booster efficacy in all adults. And so I think we're, we're just learning these data piece by piece over time. So another commonly asked question is why did CDC include on that list those who are at risk because of where they live in skilled nursing facilities or military barracks, or those who are at risk because of their work as essential workers or healthcare workers. And clearly that's changing the intent of the booster, not only to prevent severe illness and death, which it does effectively, but also re to reduce the chance of any infection so that those individuals can remain on the job and not have staff outages in hospitals and in essential workers. So it's an additional purpose of reducing all infection in those who are at greatest risk of both being taken off the job and also passing on to health coworkers and to patients in care areas. And we've actually seen data recently published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that uh, out of all of the recent deaths in, a, in, in, a, in the most recent quarter in this publication, one in four, 25%, were associated with stress conditions of care, meaning those places that were overwhelmed with numbers of patients where there might've been impairments in the quality of care because of the lack of trained ICU nurses and physicians, the lack of adequate uh, equipment or training for those individuals, or the lack of effective hospitals or uh, effective oxygen delivery. So clearly these are issues that are, I think of great importance in our overall response to uh, managing COVID-19. All right, so I want to finish in this. Uh, in, this is intended very much to be a question and answer uh, session. So happy to take questions following this. Just one last comment on the question of mixing and matching. At the same time, recently, there's been a, a, um, a pronouncement from CDC that mixing and matching appears to be safe in multiple studies. And I'm showing you one recently published from NIAID safe, that is, there's no untoward effects from using one vaccine as a booster for another, but also effective at in re resulting in increasing uh, RBD and neutralizing antibody titers and in blocking subsequent infections. So what you can see here is this is the results of using the adenovirus vector vaccine as a booster for any one of the three different vaccines. The Janssen vaccine, the uh, Pfizer-BNT or the Moderna vaccine. And what you can see as written on the left is you see neutralizing antibodies increase anywhere from 4.2 to 76 fold greater. Um, and when you use the adenovirus vaccine to boost itself, that is the Janssen vaccine to boost someone who's received the Janssen vaccine, the increase is more modest. It's only about a fourfold increase. When you use mRNA vaccines as boosters, you can see a much larger increase from 33 to 56 fold increase, whether or not the initial vaccine was with um, the Janssen vaccine or with one of the mRNA vaccines. So excellent results. CDC declined to choose to say one is better than the other. They're all effective at uh, inducing a larger antibody response than was initially seen. And the efficacy studies to date show a comparable efficacy across them. My own personal opinion is 
I favor the use of the mRNA vaccines as boosters based on these data, simply because the antibody levels are higher. So I wanna summarize and then um, pause and uh, take your questions and answers. I, I think maybe the most important message here is that we've seen extraordinary efficacy and safety from our current vaccine products. So I'll just take a moment with safety. I think all of you know that there's uh, a short-term a flu-like illness in a minority of patients and a sore arm might have fatigue for a day or two or low-grade temperature as the immediate consequence of vaccination. But serious uh, adverse events are extremely rare. Um, it's worth, I think, talking to our patients about this. Um, the incidence of anaphylaxis is 11 per 1 million, and three out of four of those occur within the first 15 minutes and are identifiable and manageable. There have been um, uh, so I, I think severe illness as a consequence of acute anaphylaxis has been uh, extremely rare. We do see with the mRNA vaccines, uh, rare incidence of myocarditis, particularly in younger patients and younger women. Uh, the incidence has been estimated to be 39 per million. And the risk of acquiring myocarditis is actually substantially more with the risk of, of getting COVID-19 and getting myocarditis as a result of that than as a result of vaccination. We've also seen in people who get the Janssen vaccine or the AstraZeneca adenovirus vector vaccines, the incidence of thrombosis and thrombocytopenia syndrome, that has also been exceptionally rare. Um, there's been 170 proven cases out of the many millions and millions of people who have received those vaccinations. And again, the risk of thrombosis and clotting is substantially greater for those who have uh, the COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 infection, as compared to uh, the risk of a side effect with that condition. And then finally, Guillain-Barre also has been shown to occur, with, particularly with the Janssen vaccine. The rate there is estimated to be 100 per 12 million. And that is a substantially greater risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome from COVID-19 itself than from the vaccine. So these are extraordinarily safe and effective vaccines. Um, we have seen that vaccine efficacy is reduced in immune compromised hosts. I've shown you several different cases of patients with uh, hematologic malignancies, with transplant, with advanced or untreated HIV, with chronic immune suppressive therapy who benefit from uh, a third dose. And those folks should receive a third dose within four weeks of an mRNA vaccine or a second dose promptly after receiving the Janssen vaccine. And I've shown you some evidence that vaccine efficacy wanes after six months across the population. And uh, for that reason, we've seen boosters approved by FDA and CDC for the mRNA vaccines uh, a month following initial vaccination and after two months for those who received the adenovirus vaccination. And we've seen that CDC has endorsed mixing and matching of boosters because they've been shown to be safe and efficacious. And really, I think we should just be guided by what is the most easily obtained of those most convenient, readily available um, for our patients and should not hesitate to recommend um, the use of a second or different vaccination in a setting where the initial vaccination may not be available. So with that, I want to stop and I'll turn this back over to Sarah and entertain your questions and very grateful for your attention today.
Wonderful. And thank you, Dr. Shearer, for that excellent presentation. And as you may imagine, we've had a number of questions come in from our participants, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can now. And so we'll start with our first question that comes from Lisa. And Lisa asks, do you have any suggestions regarding boosters for those who have had COVID and then were vaccinated and are now more than six months out from vaccination? Yeah, you know, we, we have good evidence that receiving, that having acquired COVID has the sort of the impact, a similar impact in terms of antibody response in some patients of an initial vaccination. And that it led several countries in Europe actually to say someone who was known with a proven diagnosis previously of SARS-CoV-2 infection only would be given a single dose rather than a two dose of an mRNA vaccination because their response is, is so high just with a single vaccination because they've already had some immune stimulation. The problem with that strategy is that it's incomplete. There's quite a range of immunologic responses to people following an acute infection. And so I think I would regard in this setting, um, the case that you've given, I would just following that six months I would give a standard booster. There's every reason to think that the waning that we've seen with uh, folks who are vaccinated who have not previously had SARS-CoV-2 infection would be um, similar. It may be to a lesser extent, but I wouldn't hesitate to give that patient a booster as well. Great. And then to piggyback on that question, um, what about those with breakthrough infections after vaccination? What are your thoughts about timing of boosters for those patients? Yeah, for the same reason, because of the um, irregularity and lack of homogeneity in the response following um, SARS-CoV-2 infection, I would just follow the same strategy. I would, um, we, we need more information about that specific scenario, um, but in, in the absence of any additional information on which to base that decision, I would follow um, the standard interval of six to eight months following the uh, last vaccination. Um, and and I, I think that's the most reasonable way to proceed. Great. And then we've had a couple of questions from Gail. Her first question is, for someone who has received two doses of the Pfizer vaccine, would you recommend a booster of Pfizer or Moderna? And she qualifies that this patient has no complicating factors. Right. Well, the, the data that I just showed you, actually, I only showed you what happened when people got the Janssen vaccine as a booster. Both of the mRNA vaccination uh, boosters were performed similarly in terms of their antibody response and overall efficacy. So just like CDC, I don't have a preference between the two. You could use either one. And the reason I think that CDC has made the recommendation in that way is for, is for convenience. So if in your setting at that on the, at the time that you want this for your patient, you don't have access to the vaccination that they initially received. You don't have the Moderna, but the Pfizer is at hand. I would use the Pfizer vaccination and vice versa. If they receive Pfizer and that's not available, I would boost them with the Moderna, which is a half, uh, a half um, of a dose of the full Moderna vaccination. And that either one of those would be acceptable in that setting. Wonderful. And would your decision change if that patient was, say, over 65 years of age compared to someone who's maybe 60 or 62 years of age? Right. Well, we, we do get into the questions of the cut points, and we're looking at a spectrum of responses. So 
there's not a huge difference between 60 and 65. And I think the the trend of the data, so we now know, I haven't seen the data that's in front of the FDA from Pfizer, but we understand that they are, um, they believe they have compelling data that a booster is efficacious and safe for all adults. And um, as you've seen several states in, in our country, I think California, Colorado, New Mexico have taken this step and New York City have said, we recommend boosters for all adults. They've gotten ahead of the data a little bit. I personally prefer that we have a single national strategy. I'm, I'm happy to wait for a thorough review of data in this era. And honestly, I'll put a plug in for my um, concern for all of us managing information and patients based on preprints that haven't been completely reviewed, um, press releases of information. Um, so we're working at, at, you know, at such a rapid pace that I, I do think we should make sure we've paused for all due consideration and deliberation over the, all of the available data, not little pieces that come out in press releases or um, even in preprint. So I'm a little more patient than that. I do understand that this is uh, an extraordinary pandemic and an emergency. And you know I have no, no questions about the pace that we're moving at, but I think it's very important that we move at all due deliberate speed. So um, if the 60 year old was an otherwise healthy individual who did not have comorbidities, the data actually quite good that that person has a, a, a durable response. And, we're beginning to see waning over a six month period, but to the greatest degree in those folks who are either over age 65, less than not, not 60, and those who have comorbidities. So an otherwise healthy 60 year old maybe um, would, would be lesser a, a lesser priority than others. I, I think we're going to see data that um, there's continuing waning over time. And, you know, it's important to say it's not just waning in the antibody levels. We know that following an initial robust antibody response, we expect vaccines to yield gradual declining neutralizing antibodies um, as part of the natural part of vaccination. And more and more of the burden of the immune response is then taken over by the cellular immune response. We've seen one study that estimated that two-thirds of the sort of uh, of the response to immunization was predicted by antibody levels. Although I just want to make sure everybody knows you can't measure and follow your own level and compare that to some threshold at, or above which it shows that you're fully protected. Um, there's variations in the labs and the way that this is done. I think some patients are getting these numbers of their antibodies and proudly saying they have very high levels, and that's really not meaningful at an individual level, and I would discourage anybody from doing that. On the other hand, across a population, there's a very clear correlation with the level of antibody and the likelihood of an immune response. Well, that other one-third that is not taken care of or described or predicted by antibody levels is likely to involve T cells and, and uh, natural helper cells, killer cells, the cellular immune response that kicks in kicks in weeks and months following uh, immunization. Um, and that also has corresponded quite well to uh, antibody levels. So for that 60 year old, I'd say stay tuned. Let's wait to see what the Pfizer data shows, what additional data from Israel shows. And it, it does seem like we're heading to a place where uh, a booster dose is 
been shown to be safe and of some value in, uh, in, in other adults. But I'd say be patient and wait for that data to come. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Shear. And, and in the course of answering uh, that question, you answered my next question to you that was from Richard asking about, you know, is there utility in measuring and following antibody levels to guide boosters? And, and so thank you for speaking to that already. Um, I think our next question we'll move over to is from Cecina, who asked uh, a few questions about uh, speaking to the efficacy with delayed doses. You know, and maybe what can you talk to us about if perhaps your second dose of a two vaccine series is delayed? Um, and should, you know, are there, are there situations where we should be delaying uh, the second dose? Well, it's a smart question uh, because there are centers, the UK in particular has sort of made a policy decision to rapidly vaccinate the largest number of people possible with the first dose and to allow for some um, delays and then studied the outcomes. And there have been satisfactory outcomes and even in some cases, higher antibody level responses when there's, instead of following the strict three or four weeks for the Moderna and the BNT interval, when you allow that to go out to two and three months. So it, I think the answer for all of us is that there, an, an interval is acceptable I don't think it's desirable. Um, I think that the reason, the rationale for the initial dosing structure was actually carefully constructed both by um, scientists at Moderna and Pfizer BNT. And that's the evidence that we have that shows overall efficacy from clinical trial data. I don't think we should be necessarily um, limited to that only, but I think those are those, that's the evidence that we have in hand that shows efficacy Furthermore, as a matter of policy, it is a much simpler matter to implement um, initial and subsequent vaccines in a given amount of time, um, and then to observe and see what has happened. That we already are having difficulty tracking individuals and keeping track of um, initial vaccinations, and now we're going to add a booster six months later. So as a practical matter, but also mostly because it's based on the science that we have in hand, the um, initial intervals for the Moderna and the BNT vaccinations, I think should be respected. I also think that um, we now have very strong evidence that the J&J's uh, Janssen vaccine has an initial response that is um, highly successful in preventing serious illness and death, but a, with a somewhat lower antibody response overall and some suggestion of waning in that in that setting, a follow-up boosting dose two months or more afterwards is recommended, also found to be safe, but to substantially improve the overall level of the response. And so I think that's another important step to take. Great. Thank you for speaking to that as well. So shifting gears just a little bit, we had a question from Sherry who wanted to know what is the best resource to direct the public to for data on breakthrough cases? Maybe where, where do you go to to get some of your information on this? Hmm. I, th I think that's a great question. The, I think the CDC website is a very important place to go for these questions of boosters, extra doses. They do have, I think, excellent information on breakthrough cases. This has come so quickly that, um, you know, one of my answers is in uh, national conferences. So a wonderful presentation from the 
Minnesota Health Department on the totality of their breakthrough cases before the Delta era and following the Delta era. Now that's an individual presentation, but there were tremendous insights, I think, in that report, similar to other reports of breakthroughs. Um, I would say the, you know, again, answering, answering this question, your, the credible scientific literature from the Lancet, from the New England Journal of Medicine, the Annals of Internal Medicine, so medical journals and editorials, commentary in that venue, um, I know will be of, have great scientific credibility. The FDA has been very public about releasing their review documents. And so individuals can go to both CDC and FDA and, and they're happy to share what their uh, expert advisory panels have been reviewing. So there's a look at the raw data itself, which I think is a tremendous advantage. But I, I really hear that the listener is saying, where, what's the latest, most easily consolidated source of information? And it, it's, it's one of the great challenges of trying to manage this pandemic is the tsunami of information. We had a tsunami of cases. We have a tsunami of publications. And trying to keep them organized and straight is a tremendous challenge. There's another very nice reference I want to give to clinicians, which is the medical letter which has always been a, a, a terrific source of information about drugs and new drug development. They have a very nice table of the currently available vaccines and their efficacy and their um, side effects um, and the question of boosters with the intent of putting it into a single accessible group of tables. So that's another one that I would um, recommend. The NIH has a working group on um, treatment of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, that's, I think, been very helpful for the people like me in the HIV treating community, the HIVMA um, and the IDSA have had guidelines. Uh, the DHHS guidelines panel for HIV treatment also has a section, uh, has addressed COVID-19 and is offering guidance on the intersection of HIV and COVID-19. And then I'd plug uh, the local AIDS education and training centers, which have pivoted and have done work around the country on COVID-19 training for, uh, for HIV clinicians and, and others as being excellent sources of information. Wonderful, thank you for sharing all of those resources. I think we have time for one more question. Uh, this question comes to us from Roger who asks, are there data and or recommendations regarding those who are vaccinated with the AstraZeneca vaccine first? Yeah, that's a great question. Or let me broaden that question because many of us are managing folks who are traveling in the United States or immigrating. We had the same question here in the University of Chicago for colleagues from China who are coming to do scholarly work who have had Sinovac or other vaccinations. And so the first answer is that's a case by case question to be answered in, in regard to the specific vaccination that people have received. Uh, in the case of Sinovac, so I'll take our case first, we have made the determination that full vaccination is a reasonable requirement given the um, lack of both data and then clear efficacy with Sinovac. So we're regarding those individuals as needing full vaccination upon arrival in the United States. 
Uh, don't feel that way about the AstraZeneca vaccine. I would put it in the same category as the other adenovirus vaccine, the Janssen vaccine, and suggest that a booster two months following um, the receipt of the AstraZeneca vaccine would be a reasonable strategy. And that would probably be my recommendation to an individual who's received the AstraZeneca vaccine. Thank you very much to Dr. Shearer and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full COVID-19 Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you. Mm-hmm.